Good morning to you all. It's great to be back with you. I think it was maybe two years, Lauren, since I was last back, and that was Proverbs. And now you're in the book of Acts, which is very exciting. I do think Acts is maybe my favorite book in the New Testament. Um, So I'm privileged to share with you this morning something of an overview. And it's also a pleasure for me to give an overview for a number of reasons. Uh, First, it's kind of my job. Uh, One of the classes I get to teach at the seminary is is what we call Bible survey. And so every year I I get to teach through the scriptures. And, um, you know, the format of those classes is is a three-hour class once a week. And we typically just do the next book in the Bible each week. So I kind of pulled up my notes and and there's three plus hours worth of notes on Acts. And, uh, you know, the time is ticking. We've got 40 minutes. So um, we'll try and make it happen. I also like doing overviews because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of just encouraging folks to read large portions of the Bible at once. I, I understand the value and I, and I do commend being in just a few verses and, and very close up study, but I would want to encourage you to balance that by regularly sitting down and reading large portions of Scripture. There's great value in just sitting down and reading Acts from beginning to end uh, or any book. It can be something that helps you to get your, your arms around the book and to understand something of the the theology of, of the book, uh, and I guess that's my goal today, is to give you something of the theology of, of Acts. Um, how, how are we going to do that? In the time that we have, I thought maybe to try and boil it down to the, the what, the how, and the why of Acts. So that they're going to be my main headings, the what, the how, and the why of the book of Acts. Beginning with the what, um, the first thing to say, perhaps most fundamentally, is that you have to remember this is the second part of a two-volume story. Um, I've even trained myself to just refer to this book as Luke-Acts. Whenever I talk about Luke or Acts, I just talk about Luke-Acts. Just as a way of, of, of remembering that this is one continuous story from Luke's gospel. Uh, I don't know too much of the history of the English Bible, and I, I don't know at what, part, at what point they got separated and, and John was inserted but I often think it would be so helpful if in our Bibles they came uh, one after the other. When you look at Acts and in the first few verses of the first chapter, we see a reference to the first volume. And there's actually a name for this. The first few verses in chapter 1 of Acts we call a resumptive prologue. All that means is, is this is Luke's prologue in the book of Acts, but it's resumptive. It resumes the story from Luke's gospel, and we can tell that because he doesn't restate his aim, nor does he give a different aim. So this is a known feature in in multi-volume books or letters that the author would just assume that you understand that the second volume carries on with the aim of the first volume. A little bit more than that, we see that in the first verse, Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that's very important. Uh, It is the first clue as to what this book is going to be about. And here I want to speak a little bit about the title. The titles of our book, uh, books in the Bible, are not inspired. They've come about through church history. Okay, so this book has become to be called Acts, and sometimes we add the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's worth just probing that a little bit and thinking through, well, well whose Acts really are we thinking about here? Um, consider the fact that in chapter 1 of the 12 apostles who are listed, 
It's only Peter and John that are named in the book thereafter. So we get this list of 12 apostles, but they all kind of disappear after that, at least by name. It's only Peter and John that are named after that. Normally, the apostles are actually referred to in the book of Acts as witnesses. And that term is is a technical term in the book of Acts. It's not used in the way that you and I might use the term witness today. We would say that you know, she, she, she bore witness to the gospel, which is fine, and, and that's absolutely okay. In Acts, it means something a little bit more specific. If you're a witness in the book of Acts, it means you have seen the resurrected Christ. If you're someone that's seen the resurrected Christ, then you're labeled as a witness, and to bear witness in the book of Acts is to speak about the resurrected Christ. And so the apostles aren't named so much as they are called witnesses, bearing witness to the risen Lord Jesus. In addition, something you'll notice as you work through the Acts is that they're often, the apostles are often acting in the name. They'll often say, we did this in the name or because of the name, for the sake of the name, referring to Jesus. So their ministry is one that is very evidently worked out according to the Lord Jesus and his ministry. Another interesting feature about the The way the apostles are portrayed is that there is an intentional parallel being forged in the book of Acts with the ministry and the life of the Lord Jesus. So if we think about Peter, who occupies most of the first half, then we have a very short interlude, as it were, with Stephen, and then Paul comes on the scene and he kind of takes up the rest of the book. In all three cases, Scholars have noted that there's this intentional presentation of them in the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Their ministries parallel his ministry. It's no accident. Uh, and, and, and that is, again, to kind of suggest to us whose acts we're really seeing here. It is not primarily the acts of the apostles that we're seeing. I would suggest that the best title for this book is The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. What Luke says in verse 1 is that I have dealt in the first book with all that Jesus began to do and teach, the hint being that this volume is going to tell us what he is continuing to do and teach. Now, I don't want to negate the role of the apostles, nor of the church. This book is about the birth of the church, nor of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a key player in this book. So if I might extend my proposed title, I would say this book is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through his apostles and the church according to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of the the intention of this book is to show us what Jesus is continuing to do through these men and, and through the church according to the ministry of the Spirit. Bach is a, is a well-known Lucan scholar, and he's done some good work, and he synthesizes the whole thing according to a, a phrase that I've stolen and I really like. He says the book is about God's promised program realized for the nations. God's promised program realized for the nations. That's how I teach this book in the survey class. That means a number of things. First of all, you should expect to see a lot of Old Testament quotations in the book of Acts. Um, Luke is continually drawing from the Old Testament in order to show us that what's happening in this book is in accordance with the prophecies given in the Old Testament scriptures. 
And I would encourage you as you work through Acts, every time you come across an Old Testament quotation or allusion, go back to the original text where it's being taken from. It's never the case that Luke is simply employing that Old Testament text because he happens to like the way the Old Testament author said it. It's so much more than that. If you go back to the original context where that quote is taken from and read that portion of Scripture, you have to understand there's a theological context that supports it. And what Luke is doing is he's pulling on that theological context and importing it, as it were, into his narrative. And oftentimes it's to show something of a fulfillment theology. This is what was said and here is now it is happening. In addition to the Old Testament quotations, we see all the way through the book of Acts one word that is arguably Luke's favorite word. It's one word in the Greek, um, in the English that we translated, it is necessary. And you can see it all over the book of Acts. Luke loves that word. It is necessary. And it's his way, again, of showing that what was spoken of in the Old Testament had to come to pass, or, to put it the other way around, in the narrative of Acts, it had to happen this way. There was no other way for it to happen, because it was prophesied of in the Old Testament. It is necessary that things had to take place like this. And then the third thing to say is that we do see in the narrative of Acts the gospel going to the ends of the earth. God's promised program realized for the nations, the shape of this narrative is one that just keeps going out further and further, starting in Jerusalem and ending very much at the ends of the earth. Now, I'm going to speak later on a little bit about how do we make application from this book, but if I can just make one point of application right now, as you read Acts, you'll be tempted often to do what we do so often do today with narrative, which is to form some kind of uh, what I call moralistic, individualistic application. And that normally looks like, be like him, imitate him, don't be like him. Um, Occasionally in biblical narrative, that's an appropriate application. It can oftentimes get us into trouble and it often will get us into trouble if that's the way you make application in the book of Acts. The book is not primarily about us. The book is about the risen Lord Jesus and the work that he continues to do. And the book is about the fact that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And so the the baseline application that you can make anywhere in the book of Acts is to simply praise God that the gospel went to the ends of the earth. Because you're here today in Christ because of this narrative. The reason that you know God today and that your sins are forgiven is because the gospel went to the ends of the earth. And that would be a wonderful application to make every single day in the book of Acts, to praise God for his program that went to the ends of the earth. So that's the the what. How about the how? How does this gospel go to the ends of the earth? How do we see God's promised program realized for the nations? We can camp out a little bit here on one verse in chapter 1, verse 8. Um, if we back up a, a, a little bit, the disciples ask a question of Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, this is not a bad question. It's actually a very logical question. And the reason I say that is because the Old Testament has given us a paradigm by which we understand the, uh, the concept of resurrection and kingdom. 
So there's a number of key texts in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 26, and Daniel 12, all of which show a paradigm of resurrection followed by kingdom. Resurrection, and then the kingdom comes. And so the disciples have just seen the resurrection. They're standing looking at their resurrected Lord. And so they ask, is now the time for the kingdom? It's a logical question, according to Old Testament theology. And Jesus says, um, wrong question. (laughs) He doesn't give an answer per se, but he says, well, you guys have got some work to do now. Uh, to, to, To put it a different way, Jesus distorts the logic or he follows a different pattern. It's not that in Acts we see resurrection kingdom, we see resurrection ascension. And his ascension means he's passing on the baton now to the disciples, the apostles. So now they have the task of preaching that kingdom. And Jesus gives them the blueprint for their ministry in verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Uh, If you're in the way of highlighting your Bible, that's the verse to highlight in the book of Acts. And the reason I say that, if nothing else, is because that is the structure that Luke gives to his narrative. So chapters 1 and 2 of Acts is introduction. Chapters 3 through 7 is the gospel going out in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 is the gospel going out in Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 through 28 is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. See, Luke knows what he's doing. He's, again, framing his narrative, giving it to us in such a way that it follows this trajectory. He's showing us that the gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. And along the way, you'll notice there are mini Pentecosts. We always focus on chapter 2. That's the day of Pentecost when the Jewish believers receive the Holy Spirit Don't miss the fact that we have some subsequent Pentecost-like moments in the book of Acts. In chapter 8 and in chapter 10, similar things happen where there is a group of believers who receive the Holy Spirit from above. Very similar to what happens in Acts chapter 2. Why does it happen so many times? Well, because each time it's with a new set of people. In chapter 2, it's the Jewish Christians In chapter 8, it's the Samaritan Christians. And in chapter 10, it's now the Gentile Christians. And each time, it is the Holy Spirit's way of validating their faith, of demonstrating to all those who would look in, saying the gospel is doing what Jesus said it would do. It is going to the ends of the earth. Beyond that, we can kind of tease out this um, statement by Jesus in verse 8 a little bit more and Consider the fact that the three geographical boundaries that he gives are not co-equal. So he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. They're not all the same kind of geographical markers. Jerusalem is a city. Judea and Samaria are regions, and then the end of the earth is actually a term taken again from the Old Testament, which normally is a reference to Gentile areas. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's showing not only where the gospel is going to go, 
but the, the effect that it's going to have. It's not simply geographical progression, but as one commentator said, it is a theopolitical revolution. Uh, I love when the Jews say in chapter 17 of Acts, these men have turned the world upside down. That's exactly right. That's what the gospel does. It turns the world upside down. We don't know how it's going to do that. It's not for us to determine the results. But you can be assured that the gospel will change the face of the areas to which it goes. Now, we're still not quite at the how of the question. All I'm saying here is this is the structure of the book. This is how we see the gospel go out. We still don't know the the particular means by which God accomplishes his work through the apostles. And I would sum it up by simply saying it goes out in accordance with the Isaianic mission. The gospel goes out in accordance with the Isaianic mission, the mission as given in the book of Isaiah. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Let's think a little bit more about that parallel that I referred to between the life and the ministry of Jesus as given in the book of Luke and then the ministry of the apostles, particularly Peter, Stephen, and then Paul. There is a strong correlation between the two, and it's intentional. But when you really get into the text and you really start to examine what parallels is Luke drawing between Jesus in his gospel and the apostles in this narrative, one thing that you start to see is that Luke is not primarily drawing on aspects of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So there's a little bit of it, and here I'm thinking about when the apostles raise the dead or heal the sick. They would be cross-referenced down the side of your Bible with events in Jesus' ministry from the first half of Luke's gospel. There are a few of those parallels, but they're not predominant. When you really start to draw the connections between the apostles' ministry in Acts and Jesus' ministry in Luke, most of the connections come after 951. So 951 in the Gospel of Luke is a key turning point where Luke says Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. That's a turning point in Luke's Gospel. And what happens after that, as you know, is that now Jesus is headed to go and die. And his teaching is just full of predictions about his forthcoming suffering and then a very, very long passion narrative in in Luke's gospel. And in the book of Acts, as Luke presents the apostle's life along a similar trajectory to that of the Lord Jesus, he is primarily drawing from that second half of his gospel. Not from the Galilean ministry, but from the road towards Jerusalem. That actually helps us understand those last chapters in the book of Acts, 20 through 28. This is where most preachers will very quietly bow out of their series in the book of Acts. (laughs) Because they just don't know what to do with it. Arguably, the first half is easier to preach, and then you get to 21 through 28, and it's just trial after trial after trial. And we don't quite understand it, and we don't know what to do with it. And so the preacher just gently announces, this week we'll be turning to the book of Philippians. Um, That's Paul's passion. That's Paul's passion that is intended to be correlated with Jesus's passion. Paul stands trial four times in the same way that in Luke's gospel he stands trial four times. 
And he stands trial in front of the same kinds of people that Paul did. The key difference being in Luke's gospel, Jesus died. In in Acts, Paul lives. The reason that Paul can live at the end of his passion is because Jesus died at the end of his passion. Now, all of that to say, as Luke forges these parallels between the Lord Jesus and the apostles, we need to understand that the way in which the gospel is going to the ends of the earth is primarily through a ministry of servanthood and suffering. The way in which the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth is primarily through a ministry of servanthood and suffering. The apostles speak about future persecution. The apostles experience persecution. They experience much suffering, and that's exactly how God intended for the gospel to flourish. This is why that that initial progression beyond Jerusalem comes about when Stephen is stoned. That is the very means by which God uses for the gospel to go out beyond the borders of Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea. We might go a little bit further than that to understand this suffering is to say that not only is it a suffering in a, in a general way, but Luke is very interested in the prophecies of Isaiah given about the suffering servant. So when you study Luke's gospel and again Acts, what you see is that Luke is continuously making echoes back to Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and 53. They're the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And so he's very eager to present Jesus as the suffering servant and then in turn as the apostles carrying on that mission. This is why in Acts 13, Paul makes a speech and he says, the Lord said to me, you'll be a light to the Gentiles. He's quoting there from the servant songs of Isaiah. So just think about how curious that is. Paul says, the Lord said to me, you'll be a light to the Gentiles, quoting from Isaiah. And if we were being pedants, we'd say, well, Paul, the Lord didn't say that to you. He said it to his servant, and we know the servant to be the Lord Jesus. But Paul can say that because he understands his role as one who's carrying on the mission of the servant. Again, we have to be careful when we make application in the book of Acts, especially if we're prone towards making individualistic and moralistic application. But there is a point of continuity here from the apostles to us, and we would maybe find it primarily in the theology of Acts 20. Acts 20 is that emotional speech that Paul gives, handing responsibility over to the Ephesian elders. And he, in many ways, is saying, I, I'm off to suffer. I don't know what lies ahead of me, but, but I'm going to suffer. And you guys now have the responsibility of shepherding this church. And what Paul does is he reminds them of how he has behaved amongst them. And then he insists on the fact that he must go to suffer. And then he passes on the responsibility. And there is a sense in which Paul is saying, you, you need to imitate me in the way in which you shepherd this church. We might say that he's passing on now the ministry of the servant from the apostles to the elders of the church. To put it very plainly, he's saying you also must have a ministry amongst these people that is characterized by servanthood and suffering. 
Now, the application would be to say we are to conduct ourselves in the same manner. If you want to be part of this drama, understanding that the gospel is going through you to the ends of the earth, know that it won't happen for as much as that you, you foster your pride in your heart. To the degree that you, you abase yourself and adopt the position of a servant, God will be pleased to use you. Understanding that the gospel life is not one where you are called to prioritize comfort but you willingly accept the fact that you may be called to suffer, then the gospel starts to do its work in your life and through you. Now, with that being said, I want to think a little bit more about the why, the, the, the what of Acts, the how and the why. And here I'm just going to talk about what we're to do with this book. So you're going to be studying this book for some time, and, and the question will keep coming up in your own mind, what's the, the so what? what? What do I do with this narrative? It is very exciting, but we want the Word of God to, to do its work in us. So what is that work intended to be? Uh, and I know that last week, Rodney taught about how to read narrative, and, and Lauren sent through his six teaching points, and I was just celebrating when I read them, because I thought, this is, this is the issue. This is, we need more teaching like this in the church on how to read narrative. So maybe a little bit of overlap with last week. I boil it down to my students and simply say, you've got to remember narrative isn't normative. Narrative isn't normative. Meaning, just because you read a story about it in the Bible, that doesn't mean it has to become your norm in your life. It isn't necessarily the case that because it's in narrative form in the Bible... It should now be what your life looks like. And again, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Um, The book of Acts has known something of a resurgence within New Testament scholarship in the last few decades, which we celebrate, which is a good thing. Uh, But when you probe why the renewed interest in the book of Acts, the answer is twofold. Number one, primarily because of the modern missions movement. And number two, because of the rise of the charismatic movement. Now, if you just think about that, if, if those two movements is what's driving the renewed interest in the book of Acts, it tells you something about what people are doing with this book. They are primarily seeking to make this narrative normative for their life. So people are looking at the book of Acts, suggesting that this is our blueprint for mission, not necessarily. They're looking at the the narrative of Acts suggesting that we should be experiencing all the same things that these people experienced. And so they look for their Pentecost experience. They look to have a a supernatural healing ministry. They look to be raising people from the dead. And the Bible has never prescribed that to us. Narrative isn't normative. And then you really do get yourself in some trouble when you get to the end, because if that's your rule of thumb for interpreting this book, now you've got to go and get a snake bite. Now you better be on a shipwreck somewhere and then you've got to get arrested. How might you apply the book of Acts to your own life? Look for those elements that Luke continues to emphasize that he gives particular repetition to, especially as it relates to the community of believers. So the apostolic age has ended and we understand that. We're not apostles So there's a lot going on with the apostles that is not intended to be normative for us. But when you see the community of believers in the book of Acts, 
And when you see an element that is being repeated over and over with reference to the community, it seems like maybe Luke is trying to impress that upon our community. Maybe Luke is trying to say, this is what you guys should look like. And then, even more than that, consider the fact that after Acts, we have all of the New Testament epistles, which are relatively easy to interpret compared to a narrative like Acts. And in those New Testament epistles, we get a a glut of imperatives. And Paul says, do this. If you see a principle in the book of Acts, which later on in one of the epistles becomes an imperative then that's something that you can make a norm in your life. You can seek to appropriate from the narrative of Acts. Are there any of those? Well, yes, there are. And one of the things that Luke emphasizes over and over again with the community of believers is that they continually gather to submit themselves to the teaching of the word, to fellowship, to communion together, sharing a meal, and to prayer. Those four elements characterize the community of believers in the book of Acts. The teaching of the word, fellowship, communion together, and prayer. Which means that should be our norm. That's what we're striving towards. This is how we want people to know us. And we trust that as we give ourselves to those simple facets of Christian living... God will use that to advance the gospel. The gospel will be doing its work in us and through us when we commit to being those who continually come together to submit to the teaching of God's word, to enjoy fellowship with one another and communion and prayer. The example I often give is of a church that we were part of in the UK before coming here. And uh, it had 13 believers 13 members in the church, and then when we left, that went down to 11. So just imagine and and express some sympathy for us when we're part of this church just over a year, and then the next Sunday, we're at Grace Community Church. And we we just couldn't get our head around what was was happening here. And that took a while. That church would come together every Sunday. There was no need to fill out attendance cards. Because you look around the room and you can see who's not there. And guess what? If you weren't there, I guarantee two or three of the other members would follow up during the week. And they'd just say, we noticed you weren't there on Sunday. Is everything okay? And then we go to the prayer night on Tuesday. Tuesday evenings, you'd go out in the rain. And it was, we lived in the, this was the windiest place in the UK. This, this place where we lived with the tiny church. So you, you'd go out and walk to the church, and it was just a 10-minute walk, and normally the, you know, the rain is, is, is horizontal, and you get there soaking, and there's six other believers there, and for the next hour you pray together. And I can tell you it's very easy to get despondent in uh, a situation like that. It's very easy to get discouraged when there's six of you, and you're soaking wet, and you don't see a whole lot happening around you. You don't see many people coming to Christ in that village. And the way in which I would encourage myself and just the message I would keep going back to is that this is how the Lord intends to accomplish his work. Not through anything fantastic, not through any big movements, not through huge conferences primarily, but through the ministry of the local church as defined by the believers coming together submitting to the teaching of the word, enjoying fellowship and communion and prayer. 
we're called to live a very simple Christianity. And as we live out that Christianity in a steadfast manner, trust that according to the blueprint given in the book of Acts, the Lord will do what he intends to do both in you and through you with the gospel. Now beyond that, and and time is running short, I want to probe a little bit more one aspect of, of that collection of activities, and that is the teaching. So the believers continually submitted themselves to the teaching of the word, and one thing that you, you, you can't miss when you read the book of Acts is just how many speeches there are. Um, Peter gives eight, Stephen gives one, the longest one, James gives one, and then Paul gives nine. So on average, there is a speech every other chapter in the book of Acts. <clears throat> and you wonder why Luke made that decision to include so many of the speeches. And the answer is, at least in part, because Luke understands the, the intention of God's word within the big storyline of Scripture, the Bible begins with God's word. God speaks, and the universe comes into being. And then he raises up prophets, Moses and those that come after him, to speak on his behalf, and each time they speak, Redemptive history advances, so the nation of Israel is formed, and then in the book of Kings, the prophetic ministry arises with a new urgency because we're on the downward slope towards exile, and so the word is advancing this nation towards the end that they deserve. And then in the, in the gospel, John says that word is now with us in bodily form, and Jesus shows up with a teaching ministry that in many ways is advancing the gospel. And then in the book of Acts, that Jesus ascends. So one question we might ask is, well, what now of the word? What of this ministry of the word that is clearly the means by which God advances his purposes throughout redemptive history? And the answer is the apostles and their speeches. They take over and they keep speaking. And they have to speak because that's the way in which God advances the gospel. As you look at the speeches in the book of Acts, you see certain elements that are repeated over and over again. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a common feature of the apostles' speeches. The offer of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. And then finally, the requirement of repentance and faith in Christ. Those elements keep coming up in the speeches, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the offer of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins, and then the requirement for repentance and faith in Christ. That, again, can become a point of application for us, and it is simply this. Though we're not apostles and though we're not all called to preach, we can all have a ministry of the gospel to one another. We can open our mouths and speak. And you don't have to know all of the theology in the world. You don't have to know everything about the book of Acts. You can simply testify to the reality of sins forgiven in your life. You can simply testify to the truth of the risen Lord Jesus. You can simply explain that the requirement for salvation is repentance from sins and faith in Christ. I was speaking just the other day to some guys about what it means to lead, to lead in ministry. What does it mean to be a leader? 
And one of the things I suggested is that you simply strive to insert God's word into the context in which you find yourself. I do believe when Timothy says, or when Paul says to Timothy, that the elder has to be able to teach, it means more than simply explaining the text, but leveraging that text so as to give life to the situation in which you find yourself. It is the ability to use this text in a life-giving way in the context in which you find yourself. And that is something we can all strive to do. In your conversation, small talk is great, but go beyond and minister the gospel to the person with whom you're speaking. When somebody comes to the door, tell them of the truth of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're meeting with a friend from church, why would you omit the very thing that brings you together? Be someone who strives to have a ministry of encouragement. What does that look like? It means ministering the truth of the gospel to those around you. It normally costs you nothing, and it means the world to the person that you seek to encourage. And it's nothing fancy, and it's nothing that's beyond any of us. It is simply explaining the gospel again to believers and to unbelievers. And that is how we're encouraged. And again, according to the blueprint of Acts, that is how God will do his work. That is how he will work out the glory of the gospel in your life and through you. And so my prayer is that you would be greatly blessed as you study this narrative in the coming weeks and months. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for the narrative that we find in Acts, for the glory of this story as we see it go out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We give you praise this morning that we are here in many ways because of this narrative. We are here this morning, forgiven, clothed in righteousness, accepted by you because the gospel went to the ends of the earth. And we understand that there are points of application that are so important for us to put into place in our own lives, so simple and yet so profoundly important. In your economy, you've ordained that the church would come together regularly Submit to the teaching of your word, enjoy fellowship and communion, and give themselves to prayer. And by that means, the gospel will go forth. You've ordained that the ministry of the word is a, is a particular ministry, an effective ministry, as we simply speak the truth of the gospel to one another. The gospel then accomplishes its work. And so I do pray that as we consider these things, we will be faithful to behave as the believing community did in the book of Acts. We wouldn't be slow to move towards fellowship. We wouldn't be slow to submit ourselves to the teaching of the word, to enjoy meals with one another and give ourselves to prayer. And Lord, please, may we be found as those who are regularly speaking the truth of the gospel, proclaiming to anyone who will listen the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins, 
the requirement for repentance and faith in Christ, knowing that that is an incredible encouragement to believers, and it is life to those who don't know you. We commit ourselves to you. We commit this year ahead in the study of Acts in EWG to you and ask for your abundant blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.